This morning, we're reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. Beginning in verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about two thousand, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This ends the reading of God's word. Good morning. The world is full of evil. It shouldn't be a surprise to us to find the world full of evil because the Bible tells us that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He is the deceiver of the whole world. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So it shouldn't surprise us that the world is full of evil. 
Jesus said, people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And if we're perceptive, the face of evil is all around us. It's in the face of Taliban terrorists killing 132 Pakistani schoolchildren ages 8 to 18. It's in the face of adults abusing children who trust them. Crack babies whose birth is marred by horrible drug addiction. People spreading gossip and slander intending to divide God's church. In fact, the word devil literally means slander and accusation. It's in the face of people embracing and sowing racial hatred in our nation. It's in 58 million abortions in the last four decades since Roe v. Wade. You can add to the list. You can add perhaps to the list darkness in your own life, in your own experience, in your own families. And the, the question that faces us as we consider this morning's passages in the face of such evil, how are we to respond? There are two equal and opposite errors we can make. One is to disbelieve the existence of Satan and demons or to make light of them. To joke the Satan made me do it t-shirt. The participation in tarot cards and occult movies and Ouija boards and astrology making light of darkness. And the other equal and opposite error is to believe and to focus on excessively Satan and his demons. To focus on darkness, uh, an unhealthy preoccupation with spiritual warfare and casting out demons, crediting Satan for works of the flesh, seeking to identify the Antichrist, seeing a demon behind every tree. We We can either make light of Satan or we can be preoccupied by him. And both extremes give Satan great satisfaction. So when we come to this morning's passage, we're asking the question, how are we to understand evil? How can we deal with evil in our society? And and here's the more pressing question. How can we deal with evil in our own hearts? The jealousy, hatred, lust, deception... Ungracious thoughts and actions, the darkness that comes from the one who is the accuser of the brothers, from one who accuses us before the throne of God day and night. And in light of that, what hope do we have? How can we overcome him? And how can we understand and apply the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, deliver us from evil. 
believe after this morning's message, that prayer will have more meaning, more traction in our lives. Deliver us, O God, from evil. Here's what we're going to see, that the one who calmed the stormy seas can also calm the storm-tossed soul. There are really three big ideas in this passage. The first is Satan's purpose to destroy. We're going to see that he is the thief who comes to steal and kill and destroy. That's why he comes. Secondly, and much more significantly, we're going to see Christ's power to deliver. The one who came to set free the oppressed. And thirdly, we're going to see man's response. We're going to see that deliverance should compel us to praise. A little background, this, this day, the day previous to the one we're reading, was one that was unforgettable and exhausting for Jesus and his disciples. It began, remember, with a blasphemous attack by Pharisees, by actually scribes from Jerusalem who came down to say to Jesus, you're doing the work of the devil. And Jesus challenged them. He says, can a kingdom divided against itself stand? Then he was, then he encountered his family. They came down to, to abduct him, to take him back to Nazareth because they thought he was out of his mind. And then he left the house of Capernaum, went down to the seashore where he was teaching and preaching about the kingdom. About having faith that the life in the kingdom required faith. And, and, and as he preached, the, the crowds were pressing upon him so that he had to get into a boat and spend the rest of the, the day in the hot sun preaching, teaching about life in the kingdom. When the day was finished, he said to his disciples, let's, let's go to the other side. Jesus knew, but they did not, that, that that seemingly pleasant, restful journey was going to include a major test of faith. This, this life, this faith that one must have for life in the kingdom would be tested in their lives. As a storm arose, as is often did on the Sea of Galilee, and the disciples were, were petrified. These experienced fishermen were convinced that they were about to die as water began to fill the boat. And Jesus is at the back sleeping. And they woke him up. Savior, don't you care? We're about to perish. And Jesus, Jesus sat up and spoke to the, to the wind and to the waves. Peace. Be still. And in a moment of time, the wind and the waves stopped. And it was still. And the disciples were full of fear. The fear that had filled them from the storm was way overcome by this fear. Because they knew, they recognized that they were in the presence of God himself. One can only imagine what the rest of that trip was like as they got out of the boat and, 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 and stood upon the land. They were probably very grateful. 
There is something about a near-death experience that isn't quickly forgotten. But the reprieve was short-lived, for there was another faith challenge awaiting them. We read that immediately, immediately as they got out of the boat, there was a man who approached the boat. There was one who was, was overcome by Satan. We see in this man the face of evil once again. This was a helpless man, a man who was wild, naked, and unkempt, a man who was shamed by his being deranged and utterly depraved, a man who was helpless. This man was demonized. And the villagers had tried to protect themselves from this man who was violent by putting him in shackles and chains. But there was a supernatural demonized strength that would come from him, that, he, that would cause him to break the shackles, that break the sh- chains. And, they, and the villagers were beside themselves. They were afraid of this man, so they rejected him. They isolated him. They shamed him. And so he lived among the caves. He lived alone. He lived unloved and unwelcome. And this passage tells us twice something that that we're intended to understand as, as part of Satan's Harassment, his power to destroy. We see in verses, verse 3, that no one could bind him. And in verse 4, no one had the strength to subdue him. Man had done all he could do. And man had neither the power nor the authority To deliver this man. This is a picture of the helplessness of man. This is a picture that shows us how helpless human beings are against the power of Satan. Brothers and sisters, we are meant to see here Satan's purpose to destroy and how effective he is. We're meant to understand that we have a very real adversary and that our ability to deal with him is very limited. In fact, we read in verse 5 that day and night among the tombs, he was always crying out, crying out like a, a, a wild animal in pain, in agony. Satan was taking him down for the count destroying his life, adding to his misery day by day, and he was cutting himself. Here we see the power of Satan to destroy a human being. Now, there's a reason behind this. Satan hates God. And Because he hates God, he particularly hates everything created by God and most particularly hates mankind. Because man is created as an image bearer. 
We were created to image God, to reflect him, to give him glory. And Satan's greatest hatred, greatest desire to destroy and defame is leveled against man. And his purpose is this, to in any way, through sin and temptation, to to bring us down, to defame God in us, to defame God's glory, to defile his image. And most especially, most especially Satan seeks to destroy man, to kill man. Satan is a murderer. And here we see a graphic picture of Satan so harassing a man ongoingly, ongoingly in a cruel way to cause him to commit suicide. Satan desires to destroy. Now, now we see that, and it's not hard to find illustrations all around us. It is that, that demonic hatred for man that, that led Herod to, to kill, slaughter so many babies looking for the Christ. It is that demonic hatred of mankind that's behind the abortions I described earlier. Millions and millions and millions of children, a generation, wiped out. It is... It is the hatred of Satan for mankind that's behind Hitler's rampage against the Jews in the Holocaust or Pol Pot or so many other dictators who have, who have sought to kill whole generations of people. A friend of ours, many of you know Andy Ellis, recently Over the past year, his wife became pregnant and they did a genetic test and they said to her, you you have a baby who has a severe genetic abnormality. If this baby even lives, it's going to be severely handicapped. You need to terminate that pregnancy. You need to kill that baby. They said, no, no, we're not going to do that. That child is is in the image of god it's an image bearer we if if god we leave that that child's fate in the hand of god they said listen it's a 99 plus percent chance of of deformity you need to you need to have an abortion and they said no well a couple of weeks ago the baby was born totally healthy now perhaps god healed that baby Thank the Lord if that's the case. Perhaps a baby was never malformed. The point is there is, there is a hatred from Satan against human beings. Satan's purpose is to destroy. And we see that because this man, this man is going down for the count and something happened that would turn things upside down and reverse the course of his despair. This man met Jesus. See, the, the purpose of this story, let's not miss this, the purpose of the story isn't primarily to highlight Satan's purpose to destroy. Now, he does purpose to destroy. We must know that. That's the backdrop. 
But the purpose of this account is to highlight Christ's power to deliver. And the Savior, think about this now, the Savior left the thousands and thousands and thousands on the Sea of Capernaum, on the shore of Capernaum, and went all the way across the sea to deliver this one man. He crossed the sea to deliver this man because he, he is the one who came to free the oppressed, to proclaim freedom to the captives. Here we see the sovereign authority of the Savior over the demonic. How do we see it? Well, first of all, when he shows up, when they pull up on the shore, there's no big party to greet them because the Gentiles, by and large, don't know who Jesus is. Jesus is unknown in this area. But there is one who comes to greet him. And it's this demonized man. And it's the demons within him that drive him to fall down at the Savior's feet. He comes and falls down, kneels before the Savior. The demons are causing him to kneel, not as an act of worship, but as an acknowledgement of his authority. An involuntary submission to Jesus' greater power. And whereas the disciples have just said, who is this? Who is this that stills the storm? These, these demons know well who this is. The Gentiles don't know who it is, but the demons, the demons know who he is. Look what he says. He calls him Jesus, son of the most high God. Now, again, the demons aren't confessing his deity. They, they say this as a desperate attempt to gain control over him based on a, an assumption that the use of his precise name would provide some advantage, some negotiating power. And they desperately plea that Jesus would not torment them. What have you to do with me? In other words, why have you come here? I adjure you, do not torment me. The demon, know this, demons know who Jesus is. Demons aren't arguing about the identity of the Son of Man. They understand who this is. They understand that they are face to face with the one who will one day issue final judgment over them. They know that. And they are simply afraid that even now, before the appointed time, Jesus may hurl them and their partners into the abyss, into eternal oblivion, because he could. Because he has authority over them. What we're going to see here is that this isn't an evenly matched fight. Sometimes when you see exorcisms, you get the idea that somehow there's, there's, there's this fight and we, we, we may win or maybe Satan will win. We're not really sure. There's, there's no fight here. This isn't evenly matched. The the demon is horrified. The demon cries out. And Jesus, well, Jesus is simply standing very calmly. And it's a wonderful picture because when when Jesus wakes up in the boat and and he looks at the storm, he, he is the picture of serenity because he knows what's coming. He just says, peace, be still, and the storm's over. Once again here, we see a storm. Jesus is in a spiritual storm. A storm 
of at least equal veracity. A, a storm that is frightening to all who perceive the storm, but not to Jesus. Jesus is calm. Jesus is confident. Jesus understands his authority. And he simply says, verse 8, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. He takes authority over the demon. And the demon, and then he asks the demon, What is your name? And the response to this is horrifying. The response to this is legion. My name is legion, for we are many. Now, legion was a Roman unit in the army of 6,000 soldiers. So the demon was communicating great numbers, efficient organization, and relentless strength. And this poor man suddenly realized, as all the onlookers realized, this man was inhabited not by a stray demon or two, but a concentrated inhabitation of thousands of demons acting together with one unified purpose, to destroy this man. Thousands of demons within this man working together to destroy this man. The soldiers of Satan were trampling his soul. He was an object of pity. His only hope that there was a liberator whose power and authority were greater than the powers that possessed him. And thank God that Jesus came to liberate him. 1 John 3 says that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. In Luke, we read a reference to Isaiah where it says that Jesus came to proclaim liberty to the captives and to set at liberty those who were oppressed. And that's what he came to do for this man. The Son of God crossed the lake to save, to deliver this man. He came with absolute authority. Now it's interesting, this is the second time, third time we've read in the book of Mark, in the Gospel of Mark, about this absolute authority. The first time is in chapter 1 in this, in this Capernaum synagogue. Jesus came to speak, and as he's speaking, a demon acts out. A man with a demon begins to shriek, begins to challenge him. And Jesus says, be silent and come out of him. Now, just imagine that. Imagine if we have a, a guest speaker here on a Sunday morning, and, and, and a demon starts shrieking. Imagine that kind of setting Imagine that speaker being able to say, be silent and come out of him. And it happens. It says in Mark 1, 27, they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves saying, who is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. 
The second time we read about Jesus' authority in the Gospel of Mark is when the scribes come from Jerusalem, the big guns, to to declare that Jesus is really serving Satan's purpose. He's just he's really just a messenger of Satan. And and Jesus says that's ridiculous. A kingdom divided against itself is going to fall. And then he says this in Matthew Mark 3:27, no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. And so here we see for the third time Jesus authority revealed, described. His authority over Satan, his authority over darkness. And here we see that the demon is begging him. There's no match here. He commands the demon to come out. The demon begs him not to send him out of the country, but instead, can we enter these pigs? So there's a herd of pigs on the, on the slope nearby. And Jesus gives them permission to go into the pigs. And pigs that don't normally... Uh, bolt that don't normally uh, run together, stampede, because of the shock of being possessed by demons, run down the hill and into the lake. And the original language says one after another, they went into the lake and drowned themselves. Now, this story is told so that we'll be aware of this, that Satan's intention was to destroy God's creation. Satan's intention was to destroy the one that they inhabited. And being unsuccessful in destroying the man, then they chose instead to destroy the pigs. Make no mistake, Satan's intention, their real purpose was the total destruction of their host. And we see that by how they fulfilled their purpose with the swine. We also see this graphic picture because for this once demonized man, there is a wonderful, powerful visual testimony that he has been delivered that these thousands of demons have come out of him and will not return. And for the rest of his life, he would tell with great relish how Jesus Christ delivered him and how those demons filled pigs that were destroyed. Well, not just the ex-demonized man, but all the herdsmen went into the cities and the country and they told about what had happened. Now, 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 just imagine this. This man undoubtedly had a reputation. This demonized man was well known. People feared him. People, his, his deeds were legendary. And when, when the herdsmen went and said, you know that demonized man, Al, down, down there? Well, he's not demonized anymore. A man came, a teacher, and cast the demons out into the swine. And 2,000 swine were, ran off the cliff. Uh, imagine 
Imagine how that would affect people. Imagine if you were living in a nearby city. There are, there are, there are ten Gentile cities called, called the Decapolis together around them. And imagine if you're living in one of these cities and you hear that this demonized man that's written up in all the journals, he, he's free. He's changed. He doesn't have any more demons. All the demons went into some pigs that drowned. What would you do? How would you respond? Well, probably for most of us, we'd be a little bit skeptical. Say, you can't believe everything you read on the Internet. Might or might not be true. I've heard stories like that before. I I don't believe it. So maybe you take a little weekend spin down to the lake to check it out. You go down and see if... What you've heard could possibly be true because you really don't believe it. And when you get there, you see this man who was demonized. And he's sitting. The man who neither chains nor shackles could hold was sitting quietly, peacefully. The man who purposelessly roamed about the tombs was sitting at the Savior's feet. Not only is he sitting, but he's clothed. The man who terrified others as he ran naked among the tombs is clothed. And he's in his right mind. To see this man is to immediately understand that Something miraculous has happened. You can explain a lot of things. I'm sure there are people who could try to find a way to explain what happened when Jesus calmed the storm. But it's pretty hard to explain away a man who's lived for years demonized, wild, naked, and violent, who's suddenly clothed. Peaceful and submissive. It's hard to describe, to explain that away. Except to understand that here we see the, the sovereign power of Christ to deliver. That's why I said this isn't primarily a story about Satan's purpose to destroy. Though we see that, we must understand that. But this is an account of Christ's sovereign power to deliver. One who has absolute power over demons. And one who is not only able to take authority over and cast out demons with a word. But one who is able to restore. To restore the image of God in the life of a profoundly disfigured and broken man. Here we have a picture of Jesus' words in John 10.10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Brothers and sisters, we must recognize how incredible this miracle is. The light of the gospel driving out darkness. 
Darkness cannot exist in the light of God. The power of the gospel to deliver, to set free, and to restore. And maybe this morning you would recognize that you've descended so low in sin that you can't believe you can be made whole. Maybe as you're listening to these words, you have been or are demonized. You're, you're oppressed. You, you can't do what you know you ought to do. You live in darkness and hopelessness. You feel hopeless toward the future. You have no reason for optimism. Maybe as you look toward the future, you're just so aware that it's bleak you don't even go there. Maybe day after day you've just accepted a low level of depression and discouragement as a way of life. Or maybe you have some filthy habits. Maybe you've got a mouth that's out of control so you don't say money clean things or maybe you're dishonest as a way of life and deceitful in your dealings with others maybe there are sexual scars in your life whether homosexual or heterosexual and you believe you're without hope you believe that these sins whether public or secret are going to define your life There is in Christ and in this account great hope for you. There is great hope for you. He can do it. It's the power of the gospel to save. It is the power of the Savior to deliver. It is the work of the gospel to defang your adversary. For if God is at work in your life, if you turn from your sin and trust in the Savior, the light of the gospel will drive out darkness. And if you're sharing the gospel with one who is in darkness, there can be no doubt that what you're sharing is the only hope for that person. When we look at the world around us, this, this picture of this demonized man is, is an accurate picture of where most people live, of the hopelessness that fills the hearts of anyone who doesn't call upon the Savior. Oh, people may look happy on the outside, but behind closed doors there is weeping and darkness. That's why... The gospel, helping people to understand their need for a Savior, helping people to see that apart from God, every person is dead in sin, gives first people hope in the gospel message. Paul wrote to the Colossians, Give thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of the kingdom of light, for he has, look at this, he has rescued us from the dominion 
of darkness. Brothers and sisters, that is not just true for people you're talking to. It's true for you. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. He's brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption. He has given us new life, the forgiveness of sins. He has rescued us. Listen, if you're a believer this morning, ask this question, why didn't Satan destroy you before you became a Christian? Why didn't Satan destroy you? Why wasn't he successful in wiping you out? And the answer is simply because Jesus rescued you. That's the only explanation. That's the ultimate battle. And that should humble us because we we are weak, we are needy, and apart from God's power we have no hope. I I love the words we sang this morning. For though the vile accuser roar, the sins that I have done, I I know them well, and thousands more. But God, He knoweth none. If you're a Christian... You have looked to Christ for forgiveness of your sin. And when he died upon the cross, there he hung to pay the price for my sin and your sin. There upon the cross, he took the judgment our sin deserves. He lived in darkness. He hung three hours in darkness when the Father's judgment was poured out upon the Son. Judgment that we deserved. So that at the end of that time, he could say, it is finished. We have hope. We have hope because of the Savior. John Calvin says it this way. Though we are not tortured by the devil, yet he holds us as his slaves till the Son of God delivers us from His tyranny. Naked, torn, and disfigured, we wander about till He restores us to soundness of mind. Let there be no doubt that we're more like this demonized man apart from God that we could ever recognize. Let there be no doubt that apart from God's mercy and Christ's sacrifice on the cross, His end would be our end. Satan seeks to destroy, to kill, but God's had mercy. And so we've seen that Satan has purpose to destroy Christ is powerful to deliver. And so the question is, how do we respond to that? How do we respond? How does man respond? And let there be no doubt that the only appropriate response to deliverance is praise. The only appropriate response to deliverance 
is giving thanks and testifying to his grace. And so the question is, 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 is that how these folks responded? How did the Gerasenes respond? They were the ones that were living with this man in their backyard. They were the ones who had tried to shackle him and keep him in chains to protect themselves and could not do it. They were the ones that had to listen to this man howl in pain and agony night after night. They were unsuccessful. They could not help him. So when Jesus came and Jesus delivered him and they saw this man sitting there whole, dressed in his right mind, how do you think they responded? How would you have responded? Giving thanks? Jesus, you're you're amazing. There's no doubt that you are God come in the flesh. Wouldn't that be a perfect setup for revival? Couldn't you, couldn't you see reading here that, that revival hit this area? That the Gentiles turned their lives to Jesus Christ and were saved? Can, can't you imagine revival sweeping this area of the ten cities? But sadly, that's not what happens. What we read is one of the saddest verses in the Bible. In verse 15, they came to Jesus and saw the demonized man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Think about those words. They were afraid. Now, there's a right fear to have. The disciples certainly had it when they recognized they were in the presence of God. There is a fear that leads us to God, a fear of the Lord. But this is a different kind of fear. There is a fear that leads us to unbelief. A fear that leads us to not wanting to deal with it. These folks were afraid in a way that, that, that led them to unbelief. And so we read, sadly, in verse 17, they began to beg Jesus. Not just once, but ongoingly. They begged him and begged him and begged him to depart from their region. Please go away. We don't want to deal with you. They recognized that God was in their midst and they didn't want to deal with it. Remember the parable of the soils. This powerful seed fell upon hard ground. It bore no fruit. This is hard ground. Hard ground. They chose to serve Satan because any choice to reject God is a choice of unbelief, a a choice to serve Satan. They turned away. John 3.19 says this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. This morning, if you are aware that there is darkness within, there is hope for you, as there was for this man. But there is also the potential to turn away and say, Jesus, get away from me. I'll deal with this myself. And that's a frightening possibility. Because to do so means turning into eternal darkness. 
But the man who was delivered, well, he wanted nothing to do with that. And so when Jesus was getting into the boat, he goes and he says, Jesus, I want to come. I want to be with you. Don't leave me here alone. I want to be with you. I want to follow you. I, I'm devoted to you. I want to spend my life serving you. And Jesus says, no, no, I don't want you to come. I have a mission for you. I can't stay here, but you can. And you can stay here. And here's what I want you to do. Verse 19, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. Matthew said earlier, when God does big things in our lives, that makes a claim on us. And that claim is that deliverance must lead to praise. When God does big things for us, we must tell others what God has done, how he's had mercy on you. This man had received the unique love and care of God. Jesus had crossed the lake to deliver him, and he he had the privilege of taking that and sharing it with everyone he knew. And as a result of what he did, the entire Gentile community heard. So much so that, verse 20, he went away and began to proclaim how much Jesus had done for them. And everyone marveled. He was so faithful to take that forward that... The next time Jesus returns in chapter 7, he has to work a miracle to feed all the people that come to listen. When Jesus came the first time, nobody knew who he was. When he came back, everybody knew who he was. This man had done his job. He shared the good things God had done. And church, that is our privilege. If you are a Christian, God has delivered you. If you're a Christian, you have been touched by God. His power has dramatically transformed your life. If you're a Christian, you have the privilege of going home and telling all of your family and friends how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. J.C. Ryle says, have we, have, have we anything to tell others? Can we testify to any work of grace in our hearts? Have we experienced any deliverance from the power of the world, the flesh, and the devil? Have we ever tasted the graciousness of Christ? If we have anything to tell others about Christ, let us resolve to tell it. Let us not be silent if we have found peace and rest in the gospel. Let us tell them what the Lord has done for our souls. Evangelism is simply telling others what the Lord has done for our souls. It's not trying to convince people to sign a card or to do something for us. It's telling them what God has done for us. Deliverance leads to praise. And oh, what a privilege we have to tell of the one who came that we might have life and have it abundantly. Christ is powerful to deliver, and deliverance leads to praise. Brothers and sisters, let us go forth from this place declaring 
the goodness of God. How merciful God has been to us. Let's pray together. Father, it's hard to read these words and not be aware that as much as this demoniac has much to be grateful for and much to give thanks for, so do each of us who have been transformed by your Spirit. I pray, Father, that you would remind us of how much you have done for us. That as we sing songs, that we would sing loudly of the great good that God has done for us. That as we share with our friends our lives that just naturally, out of our heart, would come declarations of thanksgiving for what you have done for us. Lord, as we have opportunity to give of our resources, to share our lives with others, help us to be generous because of what you have done for us. For any here who this morning are in darkness, I pray that this passage would bring great hope, that you're powerful to deliver and eager to do so. As we pray together and trust you together, would you be pleased, Lord, to create new testimonies even today of your mighty power. And then let us go from here praising you for your kindness. Deliverance leads us to praise. Now be glorified as we sing this song, as we give thanks to you. Oh, Lord, from the bottom of our heart, receive our praise in Christ's name.